0: We are uh, continuing on through Deuteronomy, and we're, uh, we're, we're in the, the first part of Deuteronomy. We're going to be looking up through chapter 2, verse 1 this evening, starting in verse 34, and Don's shared, uh, you know, each week so far, and I think even really helpfully in the very first week, kind of gave a flyover of all of Deuteronomy. You know, I think I find that very helpful, those Bible project videos he's, he's used, I think, uh, I find personally very, very helpful uh, especially when you're dealing with a longer book, a book that's got a lot of different parts like Deuteronomy is. Sometimes it's helpful to know where exactly you are in this kind of larger, larger map. Um, and so as you, as you can see here, just as a real basic outline, is that we're still in the uh, Moses' first message, this sort of historical review that takes up this first four chapters. And so as we uh, go into to verse 34, uh, we'll see that it's actually really important to... Um, remember what's happened already in chapter 1. And I I know not everyone, even if you were here, remember what happened before, or if maybe it's possible you weren't here before. And so we do need to spend a little bit of time uh, reviewing, because as our passage starts off, it immediately throws us back to what came before. Because as we begin this evening in in, in verse 34, Moses uh, yeah, it just begins by saying, "And the Lord heard your words and was angered." So it's probably good for us to know. Wait, what were these? What were these words that angered the Lord? What was it that that is now getting the response that we get to unpack this evening? So we we need to back up just a little bit. Uh, it shouldn't be too hard for you. I suspect it may even be on the same page in your Bible. At most, probably one page earlier to think back to what we were looking at last week and the weeks before. Because so far, uh, Moses is reviewing for what we might call the, the, the new generation or the, the Deuteronomy generation. That's the generation following the Exodus generation. The, all those who were adults at the time of the Exodus, right, that's the Exodus generation. Uh, but they had kids or over time had kids. And that was what we might call this new generation, this Deuteronomy generation, whose Moses is speaking to now, in this extended sermon or collection of sermons in Deuteronomy. And so Moses is reviewing for this this new generation what happened when God first brought their fathers out of Egypt and what happened when he directed them to to the land he promised to them and their forefathers all the way back to Abraham beforehand. And so if you're just looking back at, say, verse 20 of chapter 1, you'd see that... uh, Moses says that and I said to you you have come to the hill country of the Amorites which the Lord our God is giving us see the Lord your God has set the land before you go up take possession as the Lord the God of your fathers has told you to, has told you do not fear or be dismayed so we jump into Moses recalling this thing that at the time of Deuteronomy it's probably about 38ish years earlier a mere maybe two-ish years after the actual exodus from from Egypt. And he's going back and, hey, you were at this moment in which the Lord was telling you, oh, it's time, it's time to go up and take possession. And then he recalls kind of what play followed out from that. Um, and because of God's command to go up, take possession, the Israelites, they sent out a group to, to spy out the land. That's what we got to Hear about a little bit last week how they they returned from their 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 little mission to uh, really with news about the goodness of God, really news about the goodness of what God was giving them. A return of with really proof, like physical proof of how bountiful and good the land that they were God was giving them was. We see this in in verse twenty five of chapter one, where they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land. And brought it down to us I the spies. they brought it down to us and brought us word again and said it is good land that the Lord our God is giving us they essentially get this little this little sample platter that shows them this is how good what God is giving you is um, they weren't easily or quickly convinced though as we saw last week that that Uh, sign wasn't enough to convince them to go up and take possession. And instead, as we keep reading in verse 26, we see that they had a fearful response. This is what Moses continues to narrate. Verse 26, yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he's brought us up out of the land of Egypt to give us into the land of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. And so we see, again, this is a, a fearful response. The people, in, uh, instead of focusing on the goodness of God and the goodness of what he's giving them, they focused on how, at least on a human level, the people are intimidating. The current, uh, the current inhabitants of the land seemed seemed. Uh, Kind of, and when you're just comparing the Israelites to themselves, this felt uh, like they couldn't conquer them themselves. And what's incredible is actually as we keep reading in verse 29, God responded with really incredible gentleness. He, he, he actually uh, responds to their fearfulness. That's what we reading in verse 29. He says, then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in all the wilderness we have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place and so it would be great we almost wish at this point the Israelites would have been convinced like oh you're right. We repent of being so fearful. Let's go do it. We trust the Lord. Let's go up and take possession. But God's promise and his reminder of his fatherly love doesn't convince them. And this really gets us to what is the word that angers the Lord. We hear it summarized in verse 32 and verse 33, right? In spite of this word, God's word to you, you did not believe the Lord your God. Went before you in the way to seek you out of place, to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day, to show you by way by what way you should go. And so these words, these words of refusing to trust the Lord, refusing to trust his goodness, and, and not just the words themselves, obviously, but obviously the, the entire disposition of distrust. That that's what angered the Lord when we come to here in verse thirty-four. And I think before we move on and before we really unpack everything that happens in the aftermath, um, it'll be helpful for us to, to note the echoes of the Eden story that are taking place here in, here in the Exodus, here in Deuteronomy. Israel has just reenacted Adam and Eve's fall. Right. Think about this. In, in both situations... Both Adam and Eve in the garden, and God's people were getting ready to enter the promised land. In both situations, God shows his goodness by providing a bounty. Right, for the Israelites, it was that, what I called kind of the sample platter that the, uh, the spies brought back from the land. Right, the sign of his bounty and his provision. And for Adam and Eve, right, it was in Genesis 2.9, what do they have available to them? Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Both had, like, they literally could taste and see that the Lord is good. And in both situations, God's people are being tempted to question God's goodness and to assume his command for them is his way of hurting them. right? This was exactly the serpent's lie in Genesis 3, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, Oh, you will not surely die when you eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? He's holding out on you. And what is what said in Deuteronomy 1.27? You murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. So in both situations, I've had opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. In both situations... Their temptation is to assume that his commands are there not for their good and out of his love, but to hurt them. And although in the garden it's a command to refrain or or wait, and in the Exodus it's a command to go, the same question lies lies underneath both. And actually, I think it becomes a template for all of our understanding at the root of what temptation is. All of them are the question of will you trust God's goodness? Will you live by faith in God according to his word or by your own sight? All right, they're so big. Will you trust in the Lord with all your heart? Go and take possession or lean on your own understanding? It seems like he's taking us here to just kill us off. All right? That this was the case for Adam and Eve. This was the case for the Exodus generation. Moses is repeating this story in Deuteronomy because it's the same question for the new generation. And we're reading it tonight because it's the same question for us. Because this continues, we see that just like in the garden, the punishment, the judgment for not trusting in the goodness of God and his promises is to be barred from his good land, his good provision. Right? This is exactly what happens And as we read in Deuteronomy 1, 34, 35, The Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. Do do, do you know, do you feel the weightiness of God's response here? Like this is a fork in the road for that generation. This was judgment day in many ways for that generation, right? They had the promise before them and their disobedience had continued. The rebellion had continued and now they have met judgment day. I mean, let that reality hit you. I mean, this this is, I think, one of the things that the, the Deuteronomy generation the new generation is meant to take to heart from this story that the faithfulness or lack of faithfulness matters it can be judged i think it's one of the things we're meant to take to heart from this story from these pages is that the threat of judgment is not an empty warning like it's a real warning and and for the exodus generation right this came while they were at there at kadesh at uh, kadesh barnea Right, it, it came at this moment. They had had grace, mercy, patience, leading them along, but the, the judgment day came. Uh, in our experience, um, we mostly live underneath the patience of God, who, in the normal course of action, reserves an ultimate judgment day for for our death. Right, it is a given for man to, to die once and then face judgment. Hebrews nine twenty seven. But judgment is real. It's not, not the empty threat that I sometimes find myself accidentally walking into as a parent. Um, where you find yourself in that situation where you're like, oh, I need. to how do I put a stop to this behavior? I'll, you're going to get in trouble if you don't stop it. And then I'm quickly thinking like, well, how would I enforce this right now? Um, and I'm realizing my kids might be learning far too often that my threats of judgment are empty threats. Um, that's thing to always be growing as a parent, trying to learn wisdom and how to not have empty threats of judgment. You will get in trouble if you don't cut that out or if you don't do this thing, right? Making sure I'm clear and I mean it when I say that. Because if I lead them astray and my kids start to think that judgment is empty, right? Oh, it's just like mom and dad. They would say, ah, don't make me turn this car around and I would never do it. If If that's what I teach them, I'm teaching them a lie about God. Because Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Judgment is real. This Exodus generation had to face it. We will face it. I, I, I ask a question as we think about this topic of judgment. Um, do you like the concept of judgment? Do you, maybe not you personally. Do you know anyone who struggles with the concept of of judgment, final judgment. Maybe not you, someone else. It tends to be one of the the doctrines, the biblical truths that we kind of shy away from, we kind of pull our punches on compared to others these days. It's not a popular doctrine, I don't think, but I think if we really thought about it, if we really took God's word to heart, we'd see that it's actually more precious and less embarrassing than we sometimes pretend. Judgment, we don't want to get rid of judgment as much as we think we do, or the people you know don't want to get rid of judgment as much as they think they do. Judgment is actually, like the idea that there's judgment, real judgment, is an affirmation of the significance Of our lives. It's an affirmation that what this exorcist generation was living out really mattered. Their faithfulness or lack of faithfulness really mattered. The fact that you and I face judgment is a sign that you matter, (laughs) that you're not just matter, chemicals, that you're not just molecules right, but you have a deeper significance is actually, that, that fact is drawn out by the fact that there's judgment. Just think about this. If we really are nothing more than material beings, just kind of accidents of time, space, and history, right, we're just complex chemical reactions that evolved out of goop, and, you know, the circumstances in a billion years kind of call for it. Maybe we'll evolve into a in different type of goop, you know, to see what the what comes up, right? If that's all we are, there's no need for judgment, right? Why would any of our actions matter eternally? If we're, if we're nothing more than just kind of our, our, our physical makeup and kind of physical response amongst other physical responses, how could there be judgment? Like, if life is meaningless, then yeah, there is no judgment, But if you suspect that life is actually meaningful, which most people do, even if they won't admit it, if you suspect that life is purposeful, which most people know deep down inside, then you better believe that judgment is real. It goes hand in hand. If we are creatures intentionally made by a personal creator and made in his image for his purpose then yes, our lives have meaning and purpose, but it also means, and this is like the unavoidable conclusion of that, is that we're accountable for that meaning. We're accountable for that purpose for which we've been made. It's the idea that we have meaning, something that's, I think, pretty precious to many people, even people who don't like judgment. You you cannot uh, detach that from the fact that there is real judgment. There's accountability for our lives. If your life has meaning and purpose you're accountable for that meaning and purpose. The only question then is, is the judge good and just? And thankfully, what God's word makes clear for, to us is that the judge is good and just. For one, as we continue reading, we see that he knows how to save the righteous. His judgment is not ham-fisted or sloppy, right? We keep reading that, um, right? Although none of those men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. We see that there is exceptions. He knows how to save the righteous, right? Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. And to him and his children, I will give the land on which he has trodden because he has wholly followed the Lord. And Moses admits that even on himself, no, he doesn't escape the judgment. Even with me, the Lord is angry in your account and said, you also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And we go on, right? As for your little ones, right? That's actually those who are now not so little and listening to this speech of Moses. As for your little ones, you said would come, pray, right? The ones you thought were goners if we headed up and obeyed God. No, they're going to be preserved by God. You who said it would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness, of the direction, in the direction of the Red Sea. We see that God's again, He's good and just. He knows how to save the righteous, and there's even a patience and mercy in this. To righteous Caleb and righteous Joshua, he preserves, and through them, through their faithfulness, especially Joshua's, he's going to use that to lead this next generation in. They will follow their righteous leader into the promised land. So then the question is how do the people respond to their judgment? How do the people respond their ju- to the judgment? Because we get in verse 41. Then you answered me. So there's a little, if you're reading slowly and you haven't read this before, you wonder how are they going to respond now? Did maybe they've, God finally get their attention? And if you're reading along with an open mind, you may have a, a, a moment where you're thinking, wow, okay, maybe this is it, right? Then you answered me. We have sinned against the Lord. Right? For a moment, and you're like, hey, are they getting it? Finally, they're having the right response. But Before we read on, I actually want to remind you of some words of the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. Uh, the Apostle Paul there talks about two types of grief. Godly grief and worldly grief. I think what we're about to see in Deuteronomy is an example of worldly grief, right? This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. The concept to take away there is that not all grief, not even really all repentance, repentance is the same. There is godly grief. There's repentance to salvation. But there's also worldly grief, or worldly repentance. And unfortunately, even though there is a good first six words here in Deuteronomy 141, I think we have an example of worldly grief. It's actually a lesson and a warning for us of what worldly grief looks like. So let's, let's just read what he says. Like Then you answered me. We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight. For I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. This again, as I said, is an example of worldly grief, worldly repentance, and and how how do we know that? Besides just the outcome, besides the outcome, how do we know this is worldly grief? I I think we see a number of characteristics of it here. Uh, First, we see that this type of repentance is self reliant; it's self reliant repentance. Notice what they said. Yeah, they admit we have sinned against the Lord. What do they say next? we ourselves will go up and fight. And Moses even continues, every one of you fastened out his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. They they thought they could fix their problem, right? Oh, yes, we've sinned, but we can go ahead and just patch this up together ourselves, right? It's It's a sort of repentance that still thinks that they can do good enough to turn it around. It's a sort of repentance that sees the sin, that sees the problem as a, a surface-level problem, a little, a little oopsie. Right? Oh, yeah we, yeah, we should have gone up before. We sinned against the Lord, but you know what? We'll just, we'll just dust that sin right off, and we'll go ahead and take care of it ourselves now. Right? We're going to go up. They don't see it as a revelation of their heart which is what it's actually meant to be, right? That sin that turns into action, that rises to the surface, that's not just a sign of, again, one little surface problem that you just need to kind of, oh, look in the mirror, and, oh, I had a little cake crumb on my face, I just need to wipe it away. Okay, problem solved. No, it's a much deeper problem. Because notice even what's changed. Earlier, like back in verse 28, they thought the enemy was too big. Now all this changes. They think it's easy, right? Well, we can. Do, yeah, we can do this. All their repentance has really been is a change in self-confidence. We used to think this venomy was too small. Now you know what? We've pumped ourselves up. We think we can handle it, right? Their trust in the Lord has not changed, which you remember is the underlying issue of all sin. Their trust in the Lord has not changed. Only their evaluation of their problem. And this, if we're not careful, this, I think, is the way our culture teaches us to repent. Or maybe even just our prideful hearts want to do repentance. You know, I can remember being being younger. If you go back 20, 30 years ago, as people were talking about kind of big philosophical issues within the culture, they were warning or talking about postmodernism was kind of taking over. That's, very, that's, that's definitely true. But one of the ideas of postmodernism that you were kind of warned about was that it's just everything's going to become relativistic, right? Uh, you know, everyone's just going to kind of be like, oh, there's no right, there's no wrong. And so what was the future that was often envisioned was one in which there was no sense of right and wrong. And that, that is partially right. That's partially what's come to play. But if, if you look around, we don't have a relativistic culture in that sense, we actually have a deeply moral culture the, i mean the morals aren't grounded in god's word they're not grounded in everything it's a constantly moving target but there is a sense that people need to be repenting all over the place and if if anything by becoming less grounded in god's word we'd become more judgmental as a culture right this, this is what we talk about when we talk about like oh the rise of cancel culture it's that people are constantly walking into sins that they didn't even know were sin, sins. Um, and, and so what happens, what you've probably noticed, is this odd rise in public apologies, right, by individuals, by corporations, where they've fallen short of some standard, almost certainly not a revealed standard. It's a constantly moving uprights, but some sort of standard that a mob. Some group has informed them that they've fallen short of. And so they they feel like they need to repent, although in this repentance there's no sense of the depths of sin. So all these public apologies, individual or corporate, will almost always have these two elements. I'm sure you've heard them before. In the statement they release, they will say something along the lines of this is not who I am as a person, or this is not who we are as a company. Right? And then the follow-up is, we promise to do better. How do they say, yeah, they're they're repenting, they're admitting they've done some sort of wrong according to some measurement, but how deep is the problem according to that? Well, it just doesn't say anything about who they are at their core, and they can just promise to do better. We've, We've fallen short, but yes, this is not who we are, and we promise to do better. That's not the biblical wisdom on the depths of sin. Godly grief understands that the sin that gets lived out is the sign of a deeper heart issue, and it's not one we can handle on our own. We cannot just say, we promise to do better. We know that sin, when it rises to the surface, is to go, yeah, that is who I am. (laughs) That, That says something about who I am at my core, at my heart. And I need God's mercy and power if I'm ever going to be different. Right? That's why we sang the hymn. I need thee every month or so, most gracious Lord. Wait, no, that's not what it was. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. Right? That's what the biblical doctrine of sin teaches us to sing and to pray. If not, we will just get swept away by our own sin. So we've seen here, worldly grief, the, the sort of repentance that the Israelites had was self-reliant. But second, worldly grief, as we're seeing here, uh, is willing to change, but it's not willing to allow it to align itself with God. Right? It still relies on its own understanding. Because notice, God God told them. God gave them a new instruction for this new situation. No, 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 it's too late. So the Lord said to Moses, say to them, do not go up or fight. I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So what is their most present command? How would they show submission to their Lord? Do not go up or fight. They're saying, no, 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 but we want to change. It's not according to God's word what he said to us we're willing to change but we're going to do it by taking up our swords notice that what what has happened here at is the israelites again willing to change but they're still the ones calling the shots they're still relying on their own understanding they're not willing to give control over to their lord How much repentance do we not do because we know we can't control when we bring our sins into the light? Godly grief, true repentance, rids you of your agenda or your plan for damage control or whatever it may be and submits to God. The Israelites show the worldliness of their repentance, of their grief, not just in that it was self-reliance, but again, change was going to happen on their own terms, not according to God's word. The third thing I think we see in this worldly grief, this worldly repentance that the Israelites put on display here, is that just as the Apostle Paul said, worldly grief produces death. Right. Self-reliant repentance, repentance leads to disaster. Right. This is exactly what Moses said, would, or Moses said would happen, right? I spoke to you. You would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as our mouth. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you so you remained at Kadesh many days the days that you remained there and we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the red sea as the lord told me and for many days approximately 38 years we traveled around mount sierra right there exodus that they'd gone through all the goodness god had shown them in bringing them out was now getting put in reverse That was the judgment coming down. That was the death that their worldly grief had led to. So this, again, is an important warning for the Deuteronomy generation, the second generation. It's an important lesson for us because repentance is a normal part of the Christian life. But godly grief Real repentance needs to take seriously the depth of our sin. It needs to see our utter inability to save ourselves. Christianity is not just a self-improvement project. Yes, it is all about being transformed in the deepest sense, but it is not just a kind of self-improvement program. It is one that submits to our Lord. And that's why this is the repentance that glorifies God, right? As Christians, not just as Old Testament Israelites, but as Christians, we know in deeper ways the depths of mercy of God in providing Jesus as the solution, the only solution for our sin problem, right? We see if we're honest about what our sin problem is the massive glory of the cross, the massive glory of God put on display in the cross. That if we kind of just needed a little boost to improve ourselves, right? Oh, you know what? We just needed to believe in ourselves like the Israelites kind of thought. Oh, we just need this slight change. We just need to do better. We just need to be more true to ourselves, right? Then the cross is just kind of a little boost. A little, hey, a little help getting there. It's kind of launch your step. It's slippery. I'll help you get there. But we see that through the cross, we are provided with a salvation that we utterly are incapable of on our own. We see the mercy of God and we're free to repent truly and honestly. I feel like I've shared this story before. Uh, but don't stop me if you've heard it. Uh, is that I, uh, in high school, I had a, a Volvo 240 DL station wagon. If I ever come into money, that's what I'll be going and purchasing. 1987 Volvo 240 DL station wagon. I loved that car. Uh, but I had about a high schooler's amount of money to put into that car. Um, and it had a uh, a fan belt that was uh, a, little, a a wee bit noisy uh one of the friends i would pick up from high for for school would usually hear me coming from miles away not miles away okay blocks away blocks away um but it it was it was very annoying it was loud it was ridiculous um but it didn't affect the function of the car all that much i just kind of ignored it um Because, again, like I said, I had a high schooler's amount of money to put into that car. Um, I was only going to put into it as much money as I could, you know, what I could afford. And because I didn't have much money to put into it, uh, I was going to ignore problems like the fan belt. um, Or there were plenty of other issues that eventually uh, led to its demise. By and large, I was just going to ignore those because I didn't have any way to pay for it. Um, It's only... Uh, as I've gotten older, um, well, don't listen to my car as I leave tonight. Uh, it still has some issues. But right, as I've gotten a little bit more money, I can put a little bit more money into fixing my car. I can be a little bit more honest about the problems that exist in my car and what needs repair. Too often in the Christian life, we act like we, my high school self in which we don't we don't think we have the ability to admit our deepest problems are even there, right? If we don't think the cross could care for very much, we're not going to ignore, we're not going to pay attention to our deepest problems. We'll just pay attention to the problems that we think we can afford to care for, right? I could fill up my car with gas, I can get an oil change, those sorts of things, right? But because of the cross, because of God's mercy on the cross, we're actually freed to admit the depth of our problems. Right? Like someone who's just got all the money in the world to pour, pour into their car. They're willing to admit, this needs repair, that needs repair, this needs repair. Right, Christians, because of the mercy of God in the cross, are able to admit our sin, not with worldly grief that says, This is not who we are, and we can do better. One who admits we need every ounce of the depth of mercy God provides to us through the cross. And we're going to see more of that mercy as we continue on in Deuteronomy. Next week, we'll we'll wade into chapter 2. But just here, in closing, we see how the judgment sets in. And I've already noted... Just like Adam and Eve got sent away from the garden, this generation is sent away from the land. The exodus is put in reverse. And so the little ones at the time of the exodus who are now the adults hearing this message are getting prepared to follow their righteous leader by faith to enter the land. Again, Moses pleading with them to live by faith and not by sight or their own understanding. Let me pray and we'll have our closing song.